season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following share from Oroki was recorded on March 23rd, 2023. My name is Oroki and I am an adult child, recovering adult child here in Chicago. I'm going to start off by reading something. Don't get scared. It's a little long, but I'm going to take you there. So, remembering church. Summer Vacation Bible School. I love Vacation Bible School. I'm nine years old. My group is learning how to use string puppets. My puppet is Barnabas of the New Testament, son of encouragement. I'm having fun, but there is Maurice Walker, a fat boy who is nine like me. He keeps trying to make his puppet do it to my puppet Barnabas. I don't like Maurice Walker, not because he's fat, but because he's always trying to do it to my puppet Barnabas. Can he at least stop while we're in church? He doesn't. Each time we get our puppets out to practice for the Bible puppet show we'll present to our parents, he finds a place close to me and rubs his puppet, Paul, on Barnabas. I want to hate him, but I can't. After all, we're in church. One day after vacation Bible school, Maurice and four other bad boys like himself chase me home across the street to where I live. I'm in the vestibule of my building. I live on the third floor. It seems I don't have a chance. This brotherhood of young male predators are in fervent pursuit of my sacred female innocence. They assault me with their groping, pushing, grabbing. They rub their stinking, sweaty bodies against mine. They stuff their hands into my vacation Bible school t-shirt, greedy for breasts that have yet to bud. I fight back with scratching, kicking, slapping, spitting, biting, waging the best war that a single girl of nine years old can carry on against this brand of childhood corny hoodlums. My stamina against the invasion, this invasion appears to intensify their force. Finally, they seem to get what they want and they run away laughing. I feel scared. I feel humiliated. I feel powerless. I'm out of breath. I am angry. This happens to me many times this summer. School. I've always loved school. And I'm a good student. I'm in the fifth grade. Sometimes during the school year, a new boy arrives. It is whispered that he has just been released from Montefiore, the bad boy school. At recess, he chases me around the playground. He pushes me into corners and gropes and feels on me. I do not like it, but I don't know how to make him stop. He gives me mean looks in the classroom. He bangs up against me on purpose, making me feel making me um, feel invisible as he feels on my butt as we line up to go to the bathroom. I am afraid of him. 
I feel helpless. Home. I am 13 years old. We now live across the street in a two-flat apartment building owned by our church. My parents are very strict and have not allowed me interaction with boys. The stern warnings of the dangers of boys have convinced me to be cautious. They have thoroughly indoctrinated me to the point that I am painfully shy in the presence of any male. We are members, the family who lives upstairs from us, there's a mother, a father, two girls, and three boys. We are members of the same church. Unlike me, the kids from this family are popular in the neighborhood. Because of them, other kids gather on our front porch singing and showing off the latest dancing, talking about sports and movies, clothes, school, signifying and gossiping. Plenty of clean adolescent merriment. Sometimes when I come home, there may be as many as 12 kids hanging out on the porch. If I'm not accompanied by my mother, I walk around the block to go in the back so I won't have to pass through them. Even though this family and these friends have never threatened me, I am terrified of popular kids. I don't know how to function in their presence. They seem to sense my nervousness and sometimes encourage me to join them. Often, I sit in our apartment and I listen to their conversations wishing that I had skills to join in on the fun. One summer evening, I am sitting on the porch alone. It is rare to find the porch empty. The oldest boy, Paul, who lives upstairs, joins me. He's not popular like his siblings. Sometimes the other kids make fun of him. I've heard that he's weird. Paul and I talk. Maybe he is a little weird, but I like this. I laugh at his jokes and I ask him questions about himself. I do not feel threatened. Before I realize a group of kids have gathered on the porch, I allow myself to feel almost comfortable. My father comes out of our apartment to the porch. My father drinks. When he drinks, he is mean to me. He drinks a lot. He never hits me with his hands or belt, but bit by bit, his words batter my soul. This time will be no different. When he sees me, his daughter, laughing and mingling with this mostly male group of teens, he shames me. He embarrasses me. He calls me a whore, demanding that I get inside immediately. I hang my head and I will myself not to cry in front of my peers. No matter how bad his words wound me, no matter how deep his venomous utterances bruise and gouge my spirit, no matter that the old sores never get a chance to heal before there are new blows, I will not let him see me cry. Again, I ask myself, why would he do this to me? Why does he hate me? No answer ever comes. I feel chagrin that my father would call his 13-year-old daughter a whore. I am devastated that my father would do this in front of other kids. I am mortified that I will have to face these kids again. I feel frustrated and I don't have the power to make him stop hurting me. I try to hate him but he is my father. Grown-up world. It is my experience that many people do not want to hear this story. I tell myself it is because some people do not want to remember their own distressed childhoods. 
I believe that some who might listen might have been bad boys or mean men themselves. To listen to me would cause them to admit the truth about themselves. Some say to me, get over it. Children bounce back. Let go of the past. Some put the blame on me. If it was that bad, why did you tell someone? I learned long ago not to tell anyone because nobody was going to do anything sometimes even now. So when as adult, as an adult, I asked my Al-Anon going mother, why didn't she protect me? And she told me she thought I was doing a good job of taking care of myself. My father's brother who lived next door to me as I grew up told me I have no right to dirty his brother's good name. The church of my adult life told me to forgive and forget. Well, I choose not to forget. My remembering has allowed me to protect my own three daughters, Ashabi, Mandisa, Uchefuna, and my eight granddaughters. There's Asafani, what's their names? Nia, and Faith Kimani, and Amaya, and Akila, and Azaria, and Layla, and Lily Mae. Those are my girls. So I protect those girls and I will stand up for them. Remembering has allowed me to stand up for them. Remembering has made me sensitive to the needs of my family and other children. And as a grandmother, my senses are vigilant for kids, teachers, neighbors, family members who would seek to harm my children. Anyone who would intentionally or otherwise harm their sweet Holy Spirit. My granddaughters know they could talk to me they know that I will listen. Remembering has allowed me to be a voice for injustice against women and children. I feel obligated to speak out and protect other women and children sometimes when I can't even find the voice to speak up for myself. I have decided that forgetting is a luxury that I cannot afford to, uh, an expense I cannot afford. I choose to remember. Thank you. So I wrote that in 1998. So I like to say I survived a traumatic childhood. And you got a little piece of what childhood was like for me. I survived that childhood by writing. I always wrote. I would tell stories to other kids. Uh, my cousin who lived next door to us two years younger, she said, and I don't remember this, but she said she used to come and sit in the bathroom while I'd be taking a bath. She'd sit on the toilet and I'd tell her stories. And that, that sounds like me because that's the kind of thing I do today. So I am a storyteller. That's what I do. And I've been telling stories a long time. Um, I am a recovering addict. And by the way, I will have 17 clean years clean tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell you even this. There's a critical parent that tells me that's not even a big deal because I have, I've been, I came to the drug program in 1985, got clean, stayed clean for 15 years and had a relapse at 15 years clean that lasted five years. It was way worse than the first bout of drug addiction. First bout of drug addiction, I hadn't even been using a year before I ended up in rehab. In fact, they used to tell me, it made me mad. They tell me that, uh, oh, you had a low bottom. I don't think we should tell people that. Um, people's bottoms are their bottoms. And over the years, um, I, at some point in my recovery, in those years beginning in 1985, um, 
first of all, let me tell you this. It says we marry or we become alcoholics. Or, you know, I, I did all of the above. Um, I've had, I'm on the second husband now. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit right now. Uh, he's not the father of my children. My first husband, well, first father was an oops moment. I'm serious. It was really a oops moment that baby happened. She's turned 50 years old in January. And then I married a man after that. I married a man who met me, who did not really know me. When I had my first daughter, I was 19 years old and I was gonna be mother earth. I was breastfeeding and I was a child development major. I used to take her to school with me. She went to the library, all the librarians knew my daughter. And you know, we were just such a special 19 year old girl doing all this. So I meet this man in this revolutionary organization I'm in. And I thought he was hilarious. He was from Mississippi and I just thought he was so funny. And he asked me to go to go out on a date. He took me to the drive-in. He brought his own um, sodas in the cooler. He had pasta. I'm like, who is this country motherfucker? <laughs> you know, who is this? But okay, and he persisted. He told me that his mother told him he would know his wife when he sees her and I'm it. I didn't get that memo. <laughs> So, so, but he persisted that I, you know, you're such a good mother and I want you to mother my children. And I gave in. Actually, you know, I was telling my mother and my cousin about, about him and they were like, girl, he, he gonna take care of your baby. You better marry that man. And he worked for the post office too. You better marry him. So I married him and I did not like him. He's a nice guy. His birthday was yesterday really, really, really nice guy. But I did not like him. And I spent a lot of years praying to love this man who was so kind to me. So we went on to have the second daughter and the third daughter. He adopted my daughter. The oldest daughter never treated her any different than my other children. And I had to reality check because I know parents can say some stuff that's not the children's story. And my daughter has agreed. He treated her like the other ones. And so I just couldn't do it. I used to pray, fall in love with this man. He's such a wonderful guy, but I didn't. I didn't like him like that. He had, he came from Mississippi picking cotton with from a family of 12. And I just couldn't get it with him. I just did not like him. So what I did, my answer to how to get out of a bad, no, it wasn't a bad marriage, but how to get out of a marriage, because I don't know how to say, I really don't like you like this. And I don't want to be married. And because we would agree we were going to have 12 kids like his parents. I'm like, right. I saw somebody's eyebrows go up. Yeah. 12 kids. I'm like, no, you don't want 12 kids, Naroki. So I decided, again, I don't know how to get out the marriage. So what I do is I commit adultery. I start sleeping around here, there, in the circle of people who we knew, hoping that he would find out and divorce me. That's not what happened. I ended up on drugs. That's how I ended up on drugs, hanging out with some people who I had criminal-minded people who I had no idea what this lifestyle existed. So I go, go into recovery. We're divorced by this time. He's taking care of the kids. He took care of the children for the first 18 months that I was in recovery so I could make a meeting every day. And I saw my children during that time because I was teaching school. And in fact, one of them was in my classroom. And so I saw them regularly, but he, they were with him. And I appreciate that he was able to take care of our children like that. So I go into recovery. I'm 30 days in recovery. And this guy invites me to a party, uh, a recovery party. I show up at the party and he's there with another woman. By the way, I'm married to him 38 years right now. Okay, yeah, that's that happened too. Then. So um, I did like him. He was cute. 
but he, he got he had some issues. He invited me to a party with a woman, and that just became the beginning of what that relationship was going to look like. But he was cute, and he liked me. He had dimples like me. So I thought that was going to work out. Again, I'm still married to him. I go into that later. My therapist told me to talk about this. I don't want to talk about that part of the story, with how this, what it looks like today in this household. But anyway, so my first 12-step meeting was Elena. My mother was in Elena, and she had been married to my dad, who was an alcoholic, who died a horrible alcoholic death. He was in a flophouse hotel, and they smelled the body, and they went in there, and my father had been dead for days. I had not seen him maybe two years before that. If my father could not look handsome, which I liked the way he looked, my father came, he came from a large family too. They were good looking black men, wore hats and suits. I have a picture of my father and his brothers at a picnic and they have on suits and ties and sharp shoes at a picnic. Those were the kind of men that my father and his family were. And he was wounded. I mean, I'm so over being mad at him. Yeah, it hurt. And it damaged my life to the point I'm sitting here with you all right now. But I'm, I'm, when I think of what his life was like, I know a little bit about his life. His parents were religious fanatics. Uh, my grandfather was a well-known um, Pentecostal minister. My grandmother was a traveling evangelical woman. She used to write us letters from across the world when we, we were kids telling us, um, you girls better come to Jesus. You know, you're going to burn in hell. What's she talking about? And she didn't like us either. They didn't like us because we didn't do God the way they understand it. So we didn't get bought into the family. In fact, there's a story I remember going, to, they lived in Logansport, Indiana, and we would go to visit them at Christmas. I remember going to visit them one Christmas. Me, I have one sister younger than me, and we go to visit them at Christmas, and all the other cousins who were doing God the way they understand it, they got transistor radios. Big deal back in the 50s, 60s. Got a right, got a transistor radio. My sister and I got handkerchiefs with quarters in them. And I was like, oh, these, they don't like us. And that was okay. And my mother was born, first of all, she didn't know her father, never knew her father. My grandmother, maternal grandmother was about 15 years old when she got pregnant with my mother in the cotton fields of Mississippi. She came up north, married somebody else, came up north, left my mother in the cotton fields with, again, I don't really even know what that was all about. But my mother her ideal was to have a, a good life. So she marries my father, who's a man who's older than her mother. I'll never know. We don't know how old my father was. He, he lied to my mother about how old he was. He was old. He was really old. And so, um, so you know, he marries my mother. And she was so happy to have this good looking old man. And she was going to have this perfect life with these two little girls. I'm the oldest. She dressed us so cute. And we were just so sweet. And we had to, we had these little cute dresses. She made all our clothes. And she was, in, she was our Girl Scout leader. She was the church secretary. She was just, she was involved in all the school activities. But my dad was abusing me. I just told you the kind of stuff he was doing. You're ugly, stupid lazy. You're never going to be anything. He would stand me and my little sister together in the mirror and say, look how beautiful she is. She's so pretty. She's so smart. She's going to be something in this world. You're never going to be anything. 
It's my dad. I believe him. It's my daddy. And then he he would have days when he would be so nice to us. We would play horsey on my daddy. We would ride on his back and just he would buck us off and we'd laugh out together on the floor. Never knew what it was going to be like. Some days he would be really nice and other days he would be really mean. My mother saw all this happen and she never said a word. And, you know, today I even get that. She needed that family. And if it meant sacrificing her daughter, me, that's what she did. Even in Al-Anon, she could not even own what had happened to me. That first time when I asked her again, she said, aren't you doing a good job of protecting us? I'm like, I was a kid. Next time I asked her many years later, we're both in recovery. She's in Al-Anon. I'm in NA. I asked mom again, mom, you know, give her another chance. Mom, why did you not protect me? And she said, protect you against what? Something happened to you? I was like, oh, my God. She will never remember this. That's what denial is. Denial really means you really don't remember it anymore. So I let her off the hook. She was a much better grandmother and even a good mother. In the end, my mother lived in this building I live in right now. I live on the first floor. My mom lived up on the third floor. I found her dead up there, January 19, 1999. Um, I miss her. But there were no regrets, not like I was mad at her, but we had every single conversation we were supposed to have because she lived here. She's in recovery. I'm in recovery. She came downstairs and we chat. I remember the last conversation we had. We just sit around and chat about stuff. So I have no regrets. I'm sure I was loved by both my parents the best they knew how to do. I have letters from my dad that he wrote me in the end of his life about how proud he was that you're married, you got you got a house, you got a good husband. And I know that's all they ever wanted, but they couldn't give me anything that they had not been given themselves. So I go into NA and I'm, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm all over the place, cheering me, sponsoring people, doing everything. Again, at about 14 plus years clean, I'm telling people, there's something wrong with me. I'm crying all the time, and that's not my spirit. Those of you who know anything about me, I'm generally jovial, not faking happy. I'm generally pretty happy, grateful. So I'm crying. And somebody needs to tell me when I get to when I got 15 minutes left, please. Okay, thank you. So I'm um I'm doing this, I'm crying, and I'm just not feeling myself. And I go to the doctor, and the doctor says it's probably menopause. They want to give me medication. I don't want to take medication because I'm trying to be drug-free and natural living. And I kept saying, it's something wrong with me. Bottom line is I end up having a relapse at 15 years clean. I told you that first time was less than a year. That next time was five years off and on. Two incarcerations happened in that in that relapse. So sometimes again, that's a crit. I know that's critical. Parents say, "Sure, you had 17 years. You had 15 years before. That's not that big of a deal. It's a big deal to have 17 years clean today." So um, I made my first. I got introduced to ACA in that first rehab in 1984 that I went to. I was in this rehab and, you know, they do the intake, you know, and ask you all these questions about your family and tell them my family. And I, I remember the intake person said, oh, you come from an alcoholic family. I was like, really? We, we ain't call it that. That's, that's just what it was. And yeah, my dad drank, but I didn't know that had anything to do with how I turned out. 
And so they sent me, while I was in the rehab, they sent me on the bus. You know, Chicago's a big place. I had to go from one end of town on the bus to go to this rehab to a, to a treatment center. And when I, it was a hospital. When I arrived at that hospital and told them, okay, I'm here for the ACA meeting. And they said, oh, that, that meeting doesn't exist. They don't have that meeting anymore. This is 1984. And I started crying. Wait a minute, they don't have this meeting. I'm on the pass from the, from the drug rehab place. I don't want to get high anymore. I got to bend it. You know, I guess they was like, okay, let me do something for her. So they called up to the unit, to the drug unit, and they sent this lady down, Carol DeBerry, rest in peace. And she comes down and she says, um, I'm about to, to um, leave this hospital and start my own practice because I know that treating just the addict or the alcoholic is not the problem. That's 1984, she said. She says, so I'm starting my own practice. And when you get out of rehab, I'd like you to be one of my clients. And that's what happened. I ended up in five years of recovery with this woman. She's called her practice, Recovering Unlimited. Back then, she was still, it was, this whole idea of the adult child was relatively new. John Bradshaw was out, out there. Melody Beattie was talking stuff. Claudia Black. And Claude, this woman, um, Carol DeBerry, was studying under these people. So, she, you know, I was getting all this rich information. I don't think I went to an ACA meeting in that time, but I was getting a lot of family history um, family trauma history information. And it helped me to um, label myself and understand what had happened in my family. My mother ended up going into treatment to therapy with that lady too. And so um, later, so I'm in NA and I go to this meeting, I meet this guy and again, he's so cute. And I want, it, I want him, I really want him bad. So we, you know, we flirt for a while and he tells me, He's got 30 days. He's got he's in treatment still. I got 30 days clean. Good matchup, right? So I we talked to each other. He says, Well, I've been in this relationship with this woman for seven years. And you know, they tell me to let it give it a year being clean before I do something with it. So I'm gonna try that first. In the meanwhile, I had two NA boyfriends, living boyfriends, not the ones, the two that I told about, not the ones I didn't tell about, but two I lived with. And so my children were still with their dad at that point. So, you know, I'm having fun. I never had fun. I had a baby at 19 years old. I just told you my parents were straight. I'm in NA and I don't have to come home if I don't want to because I don't have any kids at home. I was having a ball. So I ended up um, at the end of his his um year really it was like 18 months he says well that didn't work out with that lady that he had been living with and he's got his own place and the meanwhile me i tell him well man, i'm about to finish up this thing i'm in right now and when this is over i'll get back with you and so i did we ended a crazy situation happened and he and i ended up moving in with my three daughters who had just come back to live with their newly recovering mother who's really trying to figure herself out who really don't want any kids is for real and they hear these kids these kids are living with me now they they're using my towels they're using my shampoo they're not washing my dishes and i'm like mad at them my oldest daughter i'm giving her she's like 12 13 years old and i'm giving her rules on what she can do and not do she's like shoot i was living with daddy for the last year and a half i don't have to listen to you so nah, I don't. so we were arguing all the time you know plus she's just an adolescent too so that was real hard during that time i took her to my therapist the carol deberry lady and i'm like she's doing this she's doing this she's acting out in this and carol deberry said uh and i'm like and i'm doing the best that i could do 
I'm just giving her what I got. And Carol DeBerry said to me, oh, you may be giving her the best you got, but what if it's not enough? I'm like, what do you mean saying that to me? I'm the mother here. I brought her here. You're the therapist. You're supposed to fix her. And I was like, oh, maybe that's not how it works, huh? So um, time went on and I was in this marriage to a man who I didn't understand at the time, but was my dad. He didn't say ugly, stupid, lazy, but he said things like, I don't know why all those people see all that stuff in you. I don't know why they listen to you. I don't know what's the big deal with you. And it was like repeat, but I don't have this information yet to be able to say, stop talking to me like that. So I would listen to him and I would cry. Believe me, people are shocked when they find out who I was. And like many abused women, I didn't tell anybody. I was embarrassed because I'm doing conferences. I'm speaking at all over the place. I'm speaking you know, on the rights of women and everything, I go home and my husband is belittling me. The only people who saw it regularly were my daughters who were in the house. And at some point, my youngest daughter said to me, Ma, you out here doing all this stuff for these women? You an abused woman yourself. What? You're a kid. Don't be saying this to me. And over time, I had to look at, I was abused. And bottom line, I ended up having that relapse. I moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Again, like I said, I went to jail twice while I was in Madison. And then I got myself back on my feet again. And while I, and I, I was like, oh, okay. So I don't live with him, but I was in Madison, Wisconsin. That's 150 miles from Chicago. I'm still involved with my husband. I come home, I see him regularly. He visits me in Madison sometimes and I'm doing my thing. And you know, like, okay, maybe this could work like this. And I had some boyfriends. That's the part my therapist told me to tell the truth. <laughs> I had some boyfriends in this time. And so then, you know, I moved. So wait, so I decided I'm feel, I, go, I go to ACA. 2010, I go to ACA in Madison, Wisconsin. And I get my first red book. I get my first yellow book. And I'm like, well, okay, I can do this again. And I tell them about what's going on in my house. And I tell them, I, I'm I kind of convinced myself I should divorce my husband. I have my own apartment for the very first time. I never lived by myself. Got my own apartment. I pay my own rent. By the way, two post office husbands, by the way. Both of them were 38 years at the post office. And I was not standing outside the post office looking for husbands. It just so happened that way that I got two 38-year retired from the post office husband. So, um, my I, I serve my husband divorce papers. I don't tell him I'm divorcing him. Send, send him these divorce papers. He calls me from Chicago in Wisconsin. Like, hey, somebody just came here talking about you divorcing me. And I'm like, yeah. He says, you're not doing, oh, because it says I get half of this pension and I get half of everything. In Illinois, it's a communal state. So you get half of everything if you've been in 10 years. So I, I could have got all that. So he's like, I'm not giving you my pension. You didn't work for this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And what I said to him, because I got a little more recovery by this time, I'm not going to argue with you, I tell him. I suggest you talk to your other friends who work for the post office who've been divorced and see, do I get the house and the cars and everything else? And then he comes, baby, can we work it out? I think you should come back home. So I tell the people in the ACA, thank you. I see the people in the ACA meeting and I tell them, hey, I'm going home to my husband. 
I don't, I don't remember the crosstalk rule back then, but they definitely did some crosstalking on me. Because they were like, are you crazy going back after you told us who he is? That's what I go. That's my husband. You don't know what it's like to be a black woman trying to get a husband. So don't be trying to tell me about my business. So I came back to Chicago August 13, 2010, day after my birthday. And I looked at my husband and he looked at me. And I looked at him, he looked at me, and he was probably like, what the hell I bring her back here for? And I know I was like, what did I come back here for? I gave up my apartment to come back and live with this man? And we have lived in separate bedrooms since since I moved here in 2010. We're not sexual. We're not, we don't fight. We don't argue. We He lives his life. I live mine. We don't even, we have separate bathrooms in this we live in a big space. Um, it's a big family building. He has his own bathroom. I have mine. We got our own kitchens. Uh, again, own bedrooms. I'm not tipping in his bathroom. He's not tipping in mine. It's just not that kind of thing. We just kind of get along. He's a caretaker. He needs to be here, but this program is not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. I know his adult child story because he, you know, I've been with him for 38 years. So I know who he is, but I'm finished trying to fix him. I used to do, well, if you just came back to the meetings and then, if we just got therapy, blah, 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 and say all that. He don't want to do that. He's got, he just turned 38 years clean. I got 17 years clean. So who am I to be telling him what he's supposed to be doing? Do I want his life? No. Am I grateful for my 17 years and the life I've lived since I've been in ACA specifically? So the pandemic hits 2020 and I got a lot of N.A. sponsees, 15 to be exact at the time. And two of them are making their revolution around to the 12 steps again. And I suggested, them, hey, why don't you guys go to ACA? And I'm not even thinking about it for myself at the time. You all should go to ACA and we could do the steps in ACA. So they go to the meetings. One of them's like, no, that's not for me. I'm not trying to do that thing. The other one still is making the meetings today. And then I thought about it because we're all in our houses and, you know, at, during the pandemic and Zoom has happened and pandemic, you know, you can go to a meeting. Anytime. And look, you told them to go to a meeting. You should go to a meeting. So I did. And it was probably April when I started going consistently. And I have been here regularly since April 2020. I have so many friends. I tell people. And I can look on the screen right now and look at how many people I actually can converse with. Text, you know, you get those texts from me and um, those reminders and just happy day. And just to let people know I'm there and they remind me that they're there for me. So I didn't know any of you all. That's what I tell people. They go, well, there's so many people and I don't know how to do it. Somebody just asked me recently, I don't know what to do do what I do. Went to the meeting. They tell us what to do. They tell us, get phone numbers of people whose shares you relate to. That's what I did. So now my phone is full of people like you all from ACA. And I could call any one of you at any given time. I can go to an ACA meeting at any time. So that deadline, this still gives me every time when we read it in our reads, it says buried memories will return. I'm like, you ain't never lied. Every single meeting I go to, I hear something that I thought I forgot. And I was like, oh, I did that too. Oh, I did that too. And my family did that same thing too. And I know that I am at home with you all. I know that this is the place I'm supposed to be. I know that you all hear me. I know that you understand me. If I don't say anything, you know me. 
and you know what's, what's, what my life is like. Nobody comes here and sits in here just because. We come here because our lives have become unmanageable and we are adult children who are living lives from the standpoint of wounded children. And I'm so much better. I don't run from people like I used to. I close relationships with people rather than just, because I used to ghost people. So this the relationship again, this is the part I told I told my therapist I told him. I told her, so there's a relationship going on right now outside of this house. There's a I got one. It's a long, it's like 12 years, y'all. It's my emotional intoxication. And I try, I've tried to end this so many times. Um <laughs> it's a woman and she lives out of state. And so um I tried early in the program, I read the chapter on codependency in the book, in the big red book. And I was like, I know what's happening. I heard this in a meeting. I heard a woman say that she met her partner while they were both in their inner teens, acting out inner teen stuff. And it was fun. Then she said, uh, the partner got sick and they couldn't act like that anymore. That's what's happening in this relationship. I have met somebody who I can play, who plays with my inner self. And we have so much fun. This woman has had, had, before recently, had had no therapy, no recovery work, traumatic childhood that she's not dealing with, but everything, she gives it up to Jesus, everything that, you know, spiritual bypass we do. And so we have fun. I have so much fun. I jump in the bed and, you know, I do all kinds of stuff. And she, she likes this about me. So we have fun too. But I know that it's not my destiny. 12 years. When you're going to figure that one out, okay? <laughs> but I tell my therapist all the time, at some point, I'm going to be healthy enough because there's a lot of stuff I used to do that I don't do anymore. And I have faith that I will get through this. And just another message before I close of, of faith and how I know things work. I'm not a worrier. If you know me, I don't worry about stuff. So it works out. I was in jail. I've been drug dealers were trying to kill me. I've seen people killed. I've seen all kinds of stuff happen. I am, I just know it's going to be okay. I mean, if I get shot and killed, even that, I won't know because I'm dead then. So I know that whatever happens, I will be okay. So um, I wanted to find this reading that I had written and I couldn't find it. It wasn't in the notebook where a lot of my writing is. And I knew that I hadn't seen it since 2021 when I had performed it at a, at a, a show. So I knew that it was somewhere, but I didn't, I didn't know where it was. And I started looking, I wasn't finding it. Mm, okay. So I sit down, I never worry. And at some point, even as recent as this morning, like, I don't know where it is. So maybe I'm not supposed to read this, but in my spirit, I was like, you're, you're going to find that. And so I not think about it for a while. And then I find it again. And then something said, may, and TD knows, because I was talking to her earlier, maybe um, an hour, 15 minutes before this meeting started, something said, go look in a basket. And I'm talking about a basket of junk. And I went and looked in that basket, and there it was, just like that. Because I wrote it in 98. It's not on my computer right now. And it was there. And I was like, wow. And I just remember, that's another message. Higher power always takes care of me, whatever's going on. It's always going to work out. So it, I can use the energy to worry, because that takes a lot of energy to worry. Or I can say, higher power, God, good orderly direction, you're going to take care of me. If I'm supposed to read this thing, you'll find it. So I have one last piece I am going to close with. How, many, how much time I got, Jeff? Five minutes. Five minutes. Good. So I got a piece. 
and I wrote this piece a while ago too. It's called Firewoman. Got a lot of nerve. Almost 70 years old I am. Bold and fiery. Will not be controlled. Tried to put my flame out. Hurt. Burned myself and others with fires and lies. Faking being mild. Denying the blaze in me. No longer bow down. Mediocre life. Tepid. Lukewarm. I refuse. Passion bursts with heat. Magic. Goddess. Brave. Grace by power from on high. Firewoman. Free. That's me. Thank you so much. Welcome all the newcomers to ACA and all my friends that I know and have yet to meet. Thank you so much.